Well, we are, have a special treat today in having uh, Dr. Richard Hart with us, president of Loma Linda University, to come uh, share a word with us. For those of you who may not be aware, uh, he and his wife Judy have been long, long time members of this church, I think close to 40 years now, as I understand it. And, um, you know, um, we are blessed to have them in this congregation. Now, sometimes, you know, it's funny for people who have come, at least since I've been here, they'll say, oh, oh they go to our church? I say, yeah, and they go, they're at first service. They sit right over there. <laughs> and, uh, but we know you have a very busy schedule. And so even though this is your home church, we appreciate you coming and talking. And, and you know, Judy, one of the things um, I learned a while back after I first got here, um, that Judy, you know, music is very, very important to our kids, right? In our Sabbath schools and so forth. And I learned that it's been at least 20 years, right, Isaac? Over 20 years that Judy does all of the scheduling for all the piano players in all of our children's divisions. Now, that's a cool ministry, right? <laughs> to make sure, right? Yes. So, so if you see her around, tell her thank you for that, even if you're a kid at heart but not a kid physically anymore. Uh, but Dr. Hart, we appreciate all you're doing at Loma Linda, all you're doing globally for our church. And I just want to tell you, I know we do, but I just want to tell you, I really appreciate your voice within the Adventist Church. Thank you for who you are and all that you're doing. Let's welcome Dr. Hart up here today. God is good. And all the time. Just wanted to see if I could make that work, John. Uh, we've been coming here a long time. Uh, as John says, nearly 40 years now. We come to first service. Actually, last Sabbath, we came to second service just to see if you guys still meet uh, and found that you did. So it's good to be here with you. I want to talk to you today about tribalism. When I bring this up, most people think I'm going to tell some African stories or something. Because we usually think of tribalism as developing countries and facial markings and weird customs and all that sort of stuff. But I want to talk about tribalism in this country. For many years, we called ourselves a melting pot. Came from all over the world, kind of became one big stew together, and we were, all became Americans. Several decades ago, we realized perhaps it wasn't politically correct, so we became a tossed salad. You were still a tomato or a lettuce or an onion, but we were together in one dish. And now we've come to the point, I'm afraid, where we're not even a tossed salad. The peas and the carrots and the potatoes are all kept separate because our politicians and others have figured out how to divide us, how to separate us, how to emphasize our differences rather than our sameness. Several mornings a week, Judy and I take a long walk up Pisgah Peak. And on the way, we pass a pond by Los Rios Ranch. During the summer, they let it go dry. In the fall, gradually, the rains fill it back up again, and the ducks return. And being a bird watcher, I look at those ducks, and I notice something. The mallards are off into a corner by themselves. The American widgeons are over there by themselves. The coots are over there by themselves. Pretty soon, the wood ducks are going to arrive, and they'll be by themselves. We have a phrase for that, birds of a feather flock together. Tribalism. 
People like to stick with people who like them. If I'm in my office at sunrise, which I am too often, I can watch the crows, groups of crows fly by. In the morning they head northeast. In the evening they head southwest at sunset. Someday I'm gonna figure out where they're going. By the way, what's a flock of crows called? Come on, first service knew it. What's a flock of crows called? A murder, a murder of crows. And therefore, what are two crows on a fence called? Attempted murder. Sorry. So we're in a country that has been increasingly polarized for one reason or another. I grew up in a little town called Troy, Idaho, up in the panhandle of Idaho. All the Adventists lived out on the east side of town. We had a country church, a little school with 25 kids in it, two rooms. We had our own Fourth of July picnics, our own parties, our own everything. We were tribal. And I looked back, I thought, man, what a great incubator that was for me as a kid. And yet I realized I can remember one time ever being in the high school gymnasium for a community program in Troy, Idaho. We were separate, we're distinct, we're different. We're tribal. And if I think about our church, we're now pushing 20 million members around the world. Impressive. We've got 8,000 schools, 112 colleges and universities, 1.7 million students study in Adventist schools, 175 hospitals providing care to millions of people. Impressive. And yet there's a part of that church that I worry about because it becomes tribal. We used to talk about we can identify Adventists. I mean, we, we, we've done it. We've got our own diet. We've kind of got our own dress. We've got our own language. We've got our own customs. It used to be we could kind of say, I bet she's an Adventist. Look at her. I bet she's an Adventist. We could call them out. A few years ago when we submitted one of the grant applications for the Adventist Health Study, this is to the National Institutes of Health that determined our funding. And these scientists go through this very carefully and look at all the case we're making and all the data. And one of them came back and said, ah, I got it figured out. I know why all you Adventists live longer. You're all related. <laughs> you all come from the same gene pool. That's what's happening. And we had to find, no, that's not actually what's happening. And yet we have all these characteristics that we are together. So the question is, is it good to be tribal? <coughs> Researchers have shown that in fact, any one person can relate to about 150 to 200 people that's in your scope of being able to understand and have a relationship with. That's about the max. 
Beyond that, you know, there's acquaintances. You may recognize a face, but there's about 150 to 200 that you really can be part of your own tribe. When we first moved out up to Oakland, nearly 40 years ago now, we came to this church, and it became our tribe. We did things together. Kids were small. did lots of stuff. It was our tribe. But I want to talk to you about that. It's been a long time in this church and to watch people that I knew as babies tell the children's story, Katie. Great job. But the years go by. So I want to ask the question today, is our future as a tribe? Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, The Tipping Point, talks about a group of people he calls the connectors. The connectors. People who have the ability to come from a tribe, but connect with others, to reach out and be able to cross that boundary as connectors. Are we connectors? Can we do that? And who do we connect with? I want to tell you a story. This happened in a small town. Church-going family. Two kids, two girls and a boy. Three kids, two girls and a boy. And they went to church every Sabbath. They did all the things right and were proud of their family and watched their kids growing up. As the kids got older, they were going through the usual school processes and all the things that kids do. And as the children started maturing, the family realized that their youngest daughter was going to be one of those uniquely beautiful young women that turns heads everywhere. I've got three daughters. I know that feeling. You're proud and you're scared. But life went on, the kids were doing well, and they watched them continue to mature and grow. And then one day, the unthinkable thing happened. The mother heard it first when she was at the market. The father heard it when he came back in from the fields. Their daughter, their beautiful young daughter, had been caught in adultery. What do you do? What do you do as a family? What do you do as a church? Is it time to call the church board? Do we need to expel this member? Probation, maybe? It was a long evening in that home that evening. I sat around and ate supper in silence. What do you talk about? What do you say? The parents didn't sleep that night. You can imagine the struggles they were going through. The next morning they knew they had to talk about it. Finally got it out. 
crying, weeping, promises. Never happen again. So sorry. Embarrass the family. How do we move beyond this? The rumors kept swirling around church. Still discussion among the church. What should they do with this young lady? Can she lead out in Sabbath school any longer? Should she even come to church? What do you do? Gradually, as the days and weeks went by, why things kind of calmed down a little bit, got a little bit back to normal. And then it happened again. And again. And pretty soon their daughter, their beautiful young daughter, came to be known as the town prostitute. Now what do you do? The time to vote her out of membership? She was losing interest in the church. She kind of felt ostracized. The family struggled for months on how to proceed. Finally decided perhaps the best choice was her to move elsewhere, to go to visit and stay with some distant relatives in another town and try to start her life again. So she packed up her belongings and headed down the road. Got to the other place, found a room to stay, was determined to start her life again and start all over. Got a job, tried to go back to church. But gradually as the months went by, travelers came through, recognized her, saw her, told her story, and the old temptations returned. And she slipped back into a life of prostitution. She had pretty well given up on the church by this time. They didn't understand her, didn't seem to care. She was a city of the world, girl of the world now. One day she heard there was a visitor coming to town. She remember some church was talking in town. Wasn't much interested. This is it. She pretty well given up on the church. But purely out of curiosity, decided to go listen to this guy and see what he had to say. So she went down to the center of town and stood quietly in the outer side of this crowd. And it was there in the city of Magdala that Mary first met Jesus. And you know the story. When the crowd noticed her, they started pointing at her, nodding, decided to challenge Christ. Do you have any idea who this is? He could read their minds and quietly bent over, started writing in the sand. And one by one, they stole away. I can tell you, if I had been Christ on that spot, I would have nailed those guys on the spot. What a bunch of hypocrites. And yet Christ quietly displayed to each one their own sins and they left. 
Now, it would be wonderful if the story ended right there. Prostitute made whole, came to Christ, lived forever the Christian life. But it doesn't. The Bible tells us that later on, Christ cast seven demons out of Mary. What's that all about? We next see Mary back at her hometown of Bethany, where she was not invited to the party that Simon was putting on for Jesus. Scholars tell us that Simon was probably her uncle and probably the one that led her into adultery in the first place. So he knew her story and he was to make sure she wasn't coming to this party. He was a respected elder in the church. And so she wasn't invited. But she couldn't stay away. She slipped in the back door. After her eyes adjusted to the light, saw where Christ was, went over and anointed his feet with perfume. But she'd forgotten one thing. Perfume smells. And pretty soon the whole room was aware of what was happening and looked over and saw her. And Simon in his mind said, this is no prophet. He has no idea who this woman is and what she's done. And Christ recognized that, said, Simon, if somebody owes 500 and somebody owes 50 and both are forgiven, who would love the most? Once again, I would have been so tempted to nail Simon on the spot. What a hypocrite. And yet Jesus, in his gentle way, pointed it out in a way the crowd probably couldn't understand. And Simon knew. We next see Jesus at the foot of the, Mary at the foot of the cross, ministering to Jesus when the disciples had fled. And then Sunday morning, the first to the grave. She saw it was empty, turned to the gardener, where have you taken him? And Jesus said, Mary. And she recognized him, the only man that accepted her unconditionally throughout her life. The King James Version says, Mary, please don't touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Probably more correct translations are, please don't keep hanging on to me, for I must ascend to my Father. So we have this lady laying in the garden, holding on to the feet of Christ, the village prostitute, the demon-possessed woman, the frequent failure, hanging on to her Lord. And then if you think about that, Christ said, Mary, go tell the others. Christ selecting the village prostitute to announce to the world the most glorious news of all mankind, that Christ was risen. to be his messenger, his selected messenger. What a story, what a witness. So if we look at this in our church, 
What does it mean? We've got some who step out and do some interesting things. Saw Marion here this morning, Jerry Christmas and Scott and Marnie Carpenter taking on Haiti, committing six months to our hospital in Haiti. Quite a commitment. Perhaps not everyone can do that, but there are things you can do. I was reading a report this week about the need for foster parents in our community. The need for foster mentors in our community. For kids who need to be loved and connected. For writing notes. For visiting shut-ins. There's many different ministries that can happen. I'm concerned about our balance of tribalism and reaching out. I got a letter about two weeks ago from the General Conference from a friend I have there, Hensley Maruven, one of the Associate Secretaries, writing on behalf of a committee. It's called the Unity Oversight Committee. This committee comes out of the women's ordination conflict that's been going on in the church. It's migrated to, from that issue to what do we do if people don't comply with church policy? And the question was, Dr. Hart, Omelette is pretty big, pretty significant. Tell us what you're going to do if somebody doesn't comply with church policy. I don't know how to answer that letter. In fact, I'm not sure I am going to answer it. Because he was struggling with the issue of unity versus uniformity, of inclusion versus exclusion, of accepting versus purity and drawing boundaries around us, of becoming tribal. There are many struggles we face. If someone walked in that door right now, long-haired young man in jeans, we would recognize him as not us, perhaps. What would we do? What if he was holding hands with his partner? Another young man. What would we do? Are we big enough as a church to reach out and make that happen? What is the boundaries between guarding our uniqueness and sharing our compassion? And how do we determine that? I want to close with another story that just, just happened. Two of our young professionals at Loma Linda, one by the name of Rusty Hoft, some of you may know. His wife is one of our physicians. Rusty is the director of our business development uh, department at the medical center. And another young lady, Emily and Delayla, 
Emily is originally from Kenya, uh, but is one of our sharp young business analysts for looking at decisions that get made. And over the past few months, uh, a hospital in southwestern Kenya, Kendu Bay Hospital, has asked for our assistance uh, to Adventist Health International to help get back on their feet. Since Emily had roots in Kenya, why she became interested, drummed up some support, and she and Rusty decided to go over and help spend a week doing a business plan for Kendu Bay Hospital, looking at their issues, trying to work their way through what, could, what the future should hold. So about three and a half weeks ago now, they went, spent the week at Kendu Bay, did their thing. And on Friday, we're heading back to Nairobi. Uh, Emily went to Nairobi to visit with some relatives. Rusty peeled off and went to a, an orphanage that his dad had helped to start near a place called Kisi in western Kenya. Rusty was driving the pickup, and in Kenya, British heritage, you drive from the right side of the car and on the left side of the road. Uh, and Rusty was doing fine. Uh, when he got to this little town where they were ready to turn off to the right, he pulled over to the right, was nearly off the road, nearly stopped when a young man on a motorcycle came the other direction, hit him head on, and flew over the top of the pickup. They quickly got out, went to try to help the kid. He'd been knocked out, bad head injuries, broken legs. Put him in the back of the pickup to start driving to the hospital as quickly as they could. But a crowd had already gathered, and it becomes dangerous in these kind of settings. Uh, took off with the pickup, got about 200 yards down the road, and the pickup quit. Somehow in the accident, the battery cables had broken loose or something, and the engine stopped. The crowd immediately saw that, started following after them, uh, and they realized they needed to get out. So they had to leave the young man there, jumped on a hijacked a motorbike, and headed off to the police station. Got to the police station, reported the story, Rusty pleaded not guilty, uh, and the police insisted on going back to the site of the accident to recreate what they could, so I went back with Rusty. The crowd was still there. As the police got out, they realized it was not safe for any of them to be there, so they quickly had to leave again. Rusty got put in jail uh, for a few hours while they kind of gathered the story. Finally, after some pressure, got let out on $500 worth of bail and was allowed to stay in the guest room there locally of the orphanage while they tried to sort this out. He met with the family. They made a small restitution payment, as is the custom there, to the family. It was an Adventist family, actually, uh, and waited for the hearing on Monday morning. You're not sure what to expect in a setting like that. Well, there are honest people. There's also a lot of others that seem to prey off tragedies. And uh, when you show up like that, why there's everybody looking for a way to leverage something out of this. The hearing started. Uh, they told the case, uh, what was happening. But in the Kenyan judicial system, the prosecutor stood up and says, I don't accept the settlement. And that immediately stopped the hearing. The judge or the magistrate cannot move ahead if the prosecutor does not accept it. So the setting set shut down, and they set a hearing for the following Thursday to try again. 
it's a bit tough because during that amount of time, you know, witnesses can change their mind, people can be sought, bribes can be paid, and it was quickly escalating into a, a, a matter of considerable concern. I had several phone calls and others. We had people from here ready to fly over there. We talked with the U.S. Embassy. All the things you do to try to, to bail out somebody in a difficult situation. Wednesday morning, our time, Wednesday evening, their time, I got a call from Rusty. He said, Dr. Hart, I need to make a decision. The magistrate, our judge, who's also an Adventist, says, as long as you plead not guilty, the prosecutor can stop this affair. But if you plead guilty, then I'm back in charge. What should I do? There had already been rumors going around the village, seven years in jail, huge amounts of payment, all sorts of things going on. I'm being asked to plead guilty. What should I do? It's a sobering phone conversation. It's a tough call. But we finally made the decision that probably in this setting, that was the best choice. To cast your fate on an honest man and plead guilty. And so that's what Rusty did. And at 12.26 on my cell phone, which was 10.26 in Kenya, a text came in. I'm free booking flights to come home. And I thought since then, is that what we need to be doing, is pleading guilty? We are guilty. Casting our lot into God's hands as we seek to move beyond our tribalism beyond our own issues and truly become an ambassador for him. I want to close with a saying that I've often used, probably used it here before. It says, I would like to buy just three dollars worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love an alcoholic or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy just three dollars worth of God, please. That's a satire on the way many of us live our lives. Being part of a tribe, being part of a church, being part of a comfortable setting, but not fully embracing 
God's commission to each one of us. I'm proud of this church. It frankly does a lot. And yet the world is so desperately in need of what we have to offer. May God bless us on that journey. He is mighty to
Let's pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, as we look about us, we see a world that's increasingly writhing in pain, struggling with so many issues. And we recognize the opportunity, yea, the obligation you have given us as harbingers of peace, of messengers of compassion in this struggling world. Bless each one in this congregation, Father. Bless this church. Give them the energy, the caring, and the conviction to truly reach out and touch the world in so many different ways. Bless us now as we depart through the rest of these Sabbath hours, we pray in your name. Amen.